These are the last three verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and spoke to them, and he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I'm sure that most of you are aware that these words of Jesus are commonly called the Great Commission. They were spoken to his 11 remaining apostles on a mountain somewhere in Galilee of his designation sometime after his crucifixion and resurrection and naturally before his ascension. Our common English translations give a slightly wrong impression of the thrust of these words. In the Greek, in which Matthew wrote, the imperative, the command word among them, is not go, but it is rather make disciples. Jesus assumed that these men would be faithful in carrying the gospel out into the Mediterranean world. With these words, he instructs them to do something that was not natural for them to do as Jewish believers, and that was to take the gospel to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. A fairer treatment of these words would have the Lord say something like this, As you go, make disciples from among all the nations. And then he added, Teaching them to observe all that I have taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I call your attention to this latter phrase and ask you to notice with me that while the word name is singular, there are three persons known by that one name, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in these words of Jesus, we find a clear intimation of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which is the subject for my sermon this morning, and the theme of this tallest window on the west side of our sanctuary. During Lent, we've been talking about the windows in the sanctuary. The series has been called Windows 1986. Windows because their sermons about the windows, 1986 because that was the year that we first enjoyed them as a worshiping congregation. On the first Sunday of Lent, we looked at the middle window on this side. That was a communion Sunday, and in that window we find two symbols representing the two sacraments of the Church of Jesus Christ. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, of course, and the sacrament of baptism. On the second Sunday, we flipped our attention to this side of the sanctuary and the middle window, where we find symbols that represent the personal nature of the relationship we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There on the top is the Bible through which God speaks to us. On the bottom, a symbol of prayer, which is how we speak to God. In the third week, we looked at the back window on this side of the sanctuary. We find symbols depicting two events recorded in the Old Testament, both of which have far-reaching implications for our understanding of the world in which we live and our own nature. There are symbols of creation and the flood. And last Sunday, we looked at the back window on this side of the sanctuary, 
where we find symbols representing two miracles recorded in the New Testament, one in which Christ made water into wine at the marriage at Cana, and the other in which he took a handful of food and used it to feed a crowd of 5,000. Both of these miracles speak to us of Christ's power, and they speak to us of his compassion. Today, we look at this front window on the west side, where there are symbols representing the three persons of the Christian Trinity. At its top is a symbol repeated from the back window on this side. The hand extending downward from heaven in creation represents God the Father. In the center are very stylized versions of the traditional combination of the Greek letters chi and rho. These, some of you may know, are the first two letters of the Greek word Christos, which of course in our Bibles is translated Christ, and this symbol represents the second person of the Trinity, or God the Son. And the dove in the lower panel of the window represents God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is what one God, but that this one God, or Godhead, is somehow divided into three identifiable eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine is not that one God reveals himself in different ways to different people, or it is not that this one God is known in various ways and by various names by various people. And it is not that he has assumed different roles in different times in order to accomplish his purposes. The doctrine is that there is one God who exists always and everywhere in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Believing this makes us Trinitarian. This doctrine sets the Christian religion apart from every other religion in the world. The doctrine is hard to understand. I remember a discussion that took place on the floor of our presbytery many years ago. A young man was being examined for ordination. He was going to become a missionary to the Middle East. And one of our senior pastors, Bart Hess, some of you may remember, longtime pastor of Ward Church in Livonia, asked this young man, how do you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to non-believers? And without batting an eye, the young man said, Dr. Hess, how do you explain the doctrine of the Trinity to Christians? The big hurdle that our mortal minds face in trying to comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity is not the idea that God is three in one, It is the idea that God is one and more than one simultaneously. The possibility that he is three in one is no more or less difficult for us to understand than the possibility that he is two in one or seven in one. We can't easily understand how anything can be one and more than one at the same time. And yet this is the doctrine of the Trinity. If you're wrestling with this doctrine, then the place where you need to start is not with human reason, but with the Bible, because the Bible is the only certain source of information about God that we have at our disposal. And when we do that, when we open the pages of the Bible, wondering what it has to say about the essential nature of, the, uh, of God, 
we discover that they, the scriptures frequently refer to a plurality of persons within the single Godhead. For example, Genesis 1.26 quotes God as saying at the beginning of creation, let us make man in our image. We come to the first chapter of the fourth book of the New Testament in our search for an answer to the question, to whom was God speaking? And there we read, as you know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him. And then we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In these words, John plainly declares that Jesus is none other than the second person of the Trinity and fully God. In Isaiah 7:14, we find words that are more important to us in the Christmas season, perhaps, than at others. There we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the New Testament, Matthew quotes this Old Testament prophecy, and he teaches us that this word Emmanuel means God is with us. This little baby that we see through the eyes of our imaginations in a manger in Bethlehem is none other than Almighty God come to visit us in the flesh. In the ninth chapter of Isaiah, we read, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here, the son conceived in the virgin's womb and born in Bethlehem is called both Mighty God and Everlasting Father. When Jesus appeared in the flesh, he made a number of astounding claims about himself. He said, I and the Father are one. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. At the time of Christ's transfiguration, if you're not familiar with this event, you'll find it in the 17th chapter of Matthew, there were three men who were standing with Jesus on the side of a mountain when suddenly his clothes began to glow and a voice came from heaven that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We notice that Paul begins all of his letters with a salutation. A salutation that is nearly identical in every one of them. It's like this in Ephesians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Noting that both Father and Son together are the source of grace and the means to peace. In Philippians 2, Paul writes of Jesus that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, meaning that by claiming to be God, Jesus was not taking something that was not already rightfully his own. In Revelation 4 and 5, John records the first of the glorious visions that were granted to him. This first one was of heaven and the throne room of God. On the throne, John reports, was God the Father hidden in the splendor of shimmering light. 
And then he adds, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Here God the Father sits enthroned in the heavens, worshipped by the angels, and at his side stands the Lamb, the Son, fully sharing in the adulation of heavenly beings. From these passages, it's very clear to us that within the Godhead there are at least two figures, the Father and the Son. There are also passages in the Bible in which the number three is either revealed or strongly suggested as the census of these divine persons. In Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4, we hear angels in the midst of their worship. Here the highest ranks of the angels are heard chanting in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy hinting at the possibility that these heavenly beings look on the glory of God the Father. They reflect on the wounds of God the Son. They ponder the mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit and pronounce each of them equally holy in their praise. In the familiar language of my text, words that are almost universally used among Christians when baptisms are performed. Jesus spoke of the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Again, one name, three persons. And in Matthew 3, we find what we might regard as Jesus' baptismal certificate. There we see Jesus and his cousin John, known to us as John the Baptist, standing in the waters of the Jordan River. A good Baptist would tell us that that water was chest deep. An informed Presbyterian would say it needs to be ankle deep. But in either case, John testifies that as the Son of God stood before him, at least the top of his head still wet from his baptism, a voice came from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son. And John said that he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on Jesus. Here, present and accounted for, in this one event, are the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And thus we see that the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that within the Godhead there are three eternal persons, is clearly taught by the Scriptures. And the same Bible that convinces us that God exists in these three persons also teaches that there is a hierarchy among them. This order is suggested in the words of Christ, in the name of the Father first and the Son second and the Spirit third. For this reason, we commonly refer to the Father as the first person of the Trinity and the Son as the second person and the Holy Spirit as the third. That the Son is subordinate to the Father is plain from a number of passages. John 3.16 reminds us that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We find Jesus' first recorded words in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where at the age of 12, he said, I must be about my Father's business. 
And while he insisted that we should pray in his name, he also taught us to address our prayers not to him, but to our Father in heaven. Paul, in his salutations, always mentions the Father first and then the Son. And in Philippians 2, he writes of a day when every knee or every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in addition to this, there are many passages of Scripture that indicate that the Holy Spirit is intended to be the silent partner of the Trinity. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is as real as eternal, as fully God, as the Father and the Son, but the Bible seems to indicate that his work is never intended to draw attention to himself. In the beginning, where we hear the Father and the Son taking counsel together before the last phase of their creation of all things, we read that the Spirit was quietly hovering over the waters like a hen sitting on brooding eggs, creating life on every hand. Jesus said that the wind, the Holy Spirit is no more visible than the wind that moves the limbs of a tree. And that his presence in a person's life is known only by the fruits of righteousness born by that person. Paul's letters all begin with references to the Father and to the Son. But he makes no parallel reference to the Holy Spirit. And in that great vision of John, Revelation 4 and 5, He sees God the Father sitting on his throne in the heavens and God the Son standing nearby, but there is no reference there to the Holy Spirit. In fact, we search the entire book of Revelation in vain for any mention of the Holy Spirit or for any symbol that can be said to represent the Holy Spirit. In light of this, it seems strange that some of our Christian friends treat the Spirit as if he is, in fact, the first person of the Holy Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is interesting to think about. It is profound and orthodox theology that's good for us to be able to repeat the doctrine and point to passages of Scripture where it can be found. But like other doctrines of our faith, this one is intended to have an impact on our thinking and on our living as well. The doctrine of the Trinity should have an impact on the worship of the Church of Jesus Christ and on the prayers of individual Christians. Our view of prayer, informed by our understanding of the Trinity, is this. We pray as the Spirit leads us. The Spirit making us aware of the glory and majesty of God the Father and causing us to praise Him in the quietness of those places where we pray. Stirring our consciences drawing heartfelt words of penitence from our lips, reminding us of the Father's power and our weakness and prompting expressions of trust and dependence from us. When we pray, we pray in the name of the Son, recognizing and confessing by doing so that it is only because of his obedience and call that we have access to the grace and the heart and the throne of the Father. But our prayers are always addressed to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Not to the Son, although he is fully God. Not to the Spirit, although he is fully God. Not to an angel, 
and certainly not to a deceased man or woman, however righteous or useful he or she might have been in the course of his life. Moved by the Spirit, we offer our prayers to the Father in the name and by the grace of the Son. And this hierarchy also needs to be considered in the worship of the church. The finest of Christian worship is that which flows from minds and hearts filled by the Holy Spirit, and that is offered deliberately and conscientiously in the name of Jesus Christ the Son, but is laid before the throne of God the Father as our sacrifice and as his due. This triune God is the one Christian people gather to worship on the morning of every Lord's Day. This is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who nodded his head in agreement when the Father suggested, let us make man in our image. He is the one who called Abram from a distant place and introduced him to the promised land when he crossed its frontier. He is the one who appeared to Moses in the smoke and fire on Mount Sinai and accompanied his people through their times of victory and defeat in the wilderness. He is the one Isaiah saw high and lifted up in the temple. And he is the one observed in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is the one who appeared in human form in human history and allowed himself to be led to the cross where he died, not for his sins, but for ours. And he is the one that death could not hold, but rose from the grave, returned to the right hand of the Father, where he now presides over the flow of history and gives mercy to all who will seek it. This is God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who once hovered over the face of the deep at the beginning of all things, creating life. He is the one who stirs the consciences of all men, convicting them of sin. And so completely filled and guided the men who wrote the scriptures that the final product of their labors was not a collection of the finest memories and thoughts of men, but the very word of God. He is the one who formed life where there was no life, in my heart and in yours, and gently but firmly drew us to the cross and caused tears of remorse to fill our eyes. He is the one who bears witness with our spirits that we are now and forever the redeemed children of God and repeatedly turns our faces and minds and hearts toward the things of heaven. This is God the Father, whose splendor blinds our vision. He is the one whose power and glory are glimpsed in creation and whose truth and holiness and love and justice are clearly revealed on the pages of his word. He is the one the Son faithfully represents and serves even through the horrors of the cross. He is the one to whom the Spirit continually draws our attention and devotion. He is the one who is to be glorified in the contrite hearts and the devout lives and the uplifted voices of those people he has chosen to be his own. This God is one. This God is three. By grace, this God is ours. Let us pray.
Our Father, the more that we know about you, the more amazed that it should be our privilege to step into your presence and in our praise and in our prayers address you as our Father who art in heaven. This is a wonderful thing to us. Our minds cannot take it in. We pile up our words. We exhaust our vocabularies and yet have not begin, begun to comprehend your holiness, your splendor, your majesty, your love. Thank you for making us your own. In Jesus' name.